Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. Piero de Cosimo, The Poetry of Painting in Renaissance Florence, the first major retrospective of paintings by the imaginative Italian Renaissance master Piero de Cosimo, 1462-1522, is on view at the National Gallery of Art from February 1st through May 3rd, 2015. The exhibition features 44 of the artist's most compelling paintings, three-quarters of his extant work. Several important paintings recently underwent conservation treatment, among them the gallery's visitation altarpiece, circa 1489-1490, in this lecture, delivered on February 9, 2015, as part of the Works in Progress series, exhibition curator Gretchen Hirschauer and conservator Elizabeth Walmsley present their fascinating discoveries on Piero's known works. Hirschauer also discusses her continuing research on the chronology of his paintings and on the frames associated with these works. Walmsley highlights the range of their technical examinations that help characterize Piero's heterogeneous style. The exhibition which opened at the National Gallery one week ago, Piero di Cosimo, The Poetry of Painting in Renaissance Florence, brings together 44 paintings by the artist, about three-quarters of his known works. It includes all of the genres in which he worked, large altarpieces with complex compositions that grace the public chapels of some of the leading families in Florentine churches, tranquil images for private devotion, portraits, and entertaining and often instructive mythologies or allegories destined to decorate the walls of grand palaces of wealthy patrons. All periods of Piero's career are represented, from the earliest clear and harmonious altarpieces to his later softly colored spare religious scenes and mythologies, and in between a few puzzling paintings that we hope will encourage scholarly debate. The last and only monographic showing of Piero's work, six in all, happened in New York at the Schaefer Galleries in 1938, just days after Seabiscuit defeated War Admiral at Pimlico, and more seriously, real war loomed in Europe. At first, the idea was to bring together in Washington the splendid group of paintings by Piero found in North American collections, as he is one of few Florentine painters well represented on this side of the Atlantic. Many of these works came out of English collections between the two world wars after their exodus from Italy in the, 18th and, in the 19th and early 20th centuries. But curators with whom we discussed the project responded with the affirmation that this was an artist whose time had come and that a more ambitious project of expanded vision should be considered. As we soon learned from colleagues in Italy, the Galleria degli Uffizi in Piero's native Florence had embarked almost simultaneously on plans to celebrate the artist. And I say almost because we know that we were first. Our two museums joined forces to collaborate on this first major retrospective of the artist's work. After the exhibition closes in Washington, a version of it will be on view in Florence this summer. This is also the first paintings exhibition collaboration between the Uffizi and another museum. And so, about seven years after abstract discussions on a nearly impossible exhibition took place, it is now a reality. The first painting to be installed was the altarpiece, once in a country church outside Florence, but now in the St. Louis Art Museum. I would like to thank William Whitaker and his crew of art handlers seen here, the best in the world. 
Commissioned by the wealthy cloth merchant Piero del Pugliese, the altarpiece includes his portrait in the guise of the charitable Saint Nicholas and reflects the profound influence of Netherlandish art on Florentine painters in the decade of the 1480s. The visitation with Saints Nicholas and Anthony Abbott is one of three paintings by the artist owned by the National Gallery and also one of, is also one of his most important, a touchstone for his career. And Piero's inclination for minute detail and humor is already evident. And case in point is this tiny little monkey or cat scuttling along a railing. It's way up here, and it was never to be seen by anybody, but Piero sort of couldn't help himself, and he included it. Paintings destined for private devotion, including tender Madonnas, and a variety of round format paintings, or tondi, are on view. The popularity of this format coincided perfectly with Piero's artistic career, or perhaps the tondo became so sought after because of his innovative gift and skill for this circular shape, considered the perfect form in nature and in theology. This description also applies to the adoration of the child from Toledo, where nature and theology entwine. Squirming tadpoles in, in the water suggest new life, and their mysterious transformation into frogs becomes an analogy to Christ's miraculous birth. St. Mary Magdalene, with her rainbow garments and beautiful flowing hair looped with pearls, departs from the usual Florentine portrayal of her as an emaciated, weathered figure in the wilderness. Piero's powerful depiction of the aged and grieving mother of Christ as she mourns her dead son, the Pietà, stands in contrast to the earlier image of female beauty. And Piero's highest achievement as a religious painter, the Madonna and Child enthroned with saints, left the Museum of the Ospedali degli Innocenti in Florence, in, for, in, in Florence for Washington for the first time since it was created over 500 years ago. The museum is closed for a multi-year renovation, a lucky coincidence for us, as we were told that the panel would never have been lent otherwise. Piero's close friend, famed architect Giuliano da Sangallo, commissioned these two portraits after the death of his father, musician Francesco Giamberti. The diptych was praised by biographer Vasari, who wrote that the figures seemed to be alive. They are the first Italian portraits to characterize the sitters by their profession. Piero is probably best known for his fantastic and even bizarre mythological scenes. Often painted in a series to decorate domestic interiors, the exhibition brings together several that have long been scattered from their original homes. Not only does Vulcan and Aeolus from the National Gallery of Canada record a scene from the life of the god, it contains a portrait of the giraffe given to Lorenzo de' Medici by the Sultan of Egypt in 1487. Sadly, the giraffe died soon after when it was led through a low doorway and hit its head. Piero's most whimsical bacchanals are taken from Ovid's Metamorphosis. One recounts the discovery of honey with a merry band of nymphs, fawns, and satyrs sporting mohawk hairstyles or headpieces and green and pink ears. The Misfortunes of Silenus continues the comical story. The Liberation of Andromeda, Piero's late multi-part masterpiece of the hero Perseus saving the maiden from a sea monster, also from Ovid, rounds out the installation. 
The exhibition is now open and has received reviews full of great insight. Every curator hopes that art critics and the public, of course, will understand and appreciate the story being told, particularly when it comes to a monographic exhibition. In other words, we hope the viewers get it. With Piero, this was a bit of a risk, but it seems that we have succeeded in interpreting Piero's poetic tales, both sacred and profane. It is often said that exhibition catalogs should be written six weeks after an opening, not months before, to allow the paintings to engage each other and us in conversation. With an artist like Piero, I don't think we will ever have all of the answers, given the lack of primary documentation. So, after seeing the works in the installation process and gathered here on our walls, there are still issues to be considered, including Piero's relationship with his contemporaries, attributions, and chronology. For example, I would like to know more about Piero and the natural world. For example, Piero and his birds. Some are accurate depictions and some are invented. I should say. Uh, also, please note this tiny detail of this falcon or kestrel with a dead, possibly woodpecker, in its wings. And this is at the very, very bottom of the, uh, the uh, finding of Vulcan on Lemnos, and it's all but invisible. No one notices it until the second or third time. So again, this is very mysterious. Why is this pair of birds in this painting? This topic is already being investigated by R Roberta Olson, who will pr present her findings at the April Renaissance Society in Berlin. Only cursory attention has been paid to the artistic bond between Piero and Filippino Lippi, just five years older. There is no doubt that they were kindred spirits in the 1480s and early 1490s, and I hope to do more research on their relationship. And uh, it's clear that these two are the same man, and it's probably, uh, the face was probably taken from a death mask. And notice it's very similar, all, even down to the folded ear. And my favorite is this comparison uh, from Piero's forest fire, which unfortunately could not come because of condition, with the bear coming over the hill facing the lion, and then nearly the same uh, configuration from Leapy done a few years earlier on the right-hand screen. Three paintings in the exhibition are listed as attributed to Piero di Cosimo. There was much debate about including them here, but in the end, we realized that this should be just the occasion to see them in the company of securely attributed works by Piero. I am convinced now more than ever that St. Veronica is by Piero's hand, especially when compared to the Volto Santo from Budapest. And Piero's chronology remains very elusive in my mind. Vasari writes that Piero changed his style with every painting. The order of some of the early painting to me, paintings to me remains fluid. In addition, the date of the construction of the palace is said to be late, around 1515 or so. Even taking Vasari's comment into account, it is hard to reconcile with others thought to be from the same time period. For example, the Tondo from Tulsa or the Immaculate Conception from Fiesole. So I really think this, uh, the painting from Sarasota has to be a bit earlier than what has been commonly said. Finally, it is impossible not to notice the magnificent and grand frames found on Piero's paintings, works of art themselves. 
A few are original, like the one for the Pietà in the center of the screen. The frame made in the 1920s or 30s by Florentine frame maker Ferruccio Venoni for the Toledo Tondo still convinces some that it must be a Renaissance original. But as Elizabeth said earlier, she has the invoice uh, from uh, Duveen and uh, Venoni. Working for art dealer Lord Duveen, Venoni also made the frame on our visitation and others. The Alana altarpiece frame caused much discussion among NGA staff when it arrived. Beautifully carved oak, it did not appear to be a Renaissance frame, for it lacked any of the remnants of gesso, gilding, or paint that would be expected. We were stumped as to its origin and date until a courier to the exhibition from Florence, Claudio Paolini, an 18th or 19th century specialist, identified it as the work of the 19th century Florentine woodcarver Luigi Frullini. Frullini played a major role in the mid to late 19th century Renaissance revival in the decorative arts. His elaborate pieces were carved whole out of large blocks of wood, not smaller pieces applied to a larger panel. His work appeared in many world's fairs, the Philadelphia Centennial of 1896, decorated the rooms of Newport cottages, and is found today in museums such as the Metropolitan and the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. How this frame came to be on the Alana altarpiece is still unknown. And now we'll hear from Elizabeth Wamsley on what's new with Piero from the conservation world. This study of Piero's working methods began with the technical examination of the three paintings in the National Gallery's collection. Thanks to six museums, I was able to carry out new infrared examinations of other paintings, and along the way I was able to see other pictures, sometimes off the wall, other times in the galleries, and to look at the often extensive unpublished materials, written reports, and technical images, as well as several published articles that discuss Piero's paintings technique. I was hoping to find further evidence of how the artist constructed his paintings and to see if I could characterize the working method of the group of paintings that were to come to the exhibition. Since Piero's chronology is debated, both because of the paucity of primary documents and the heterogeneous appearance of his pictures when it considered as a group, I wondered if I could track any evolution of his working practice. I was also looking for evidence of the painting's physical and restoration histories in the five centuries since they were completed, since a painting's current condition will affect its impact on our 21st century interpretation of the painting as a, as a visual object. For me, the most rewarding part of the survey was the discussions with curators, conservators, and art historians who care for and have studied Piero's paintings. We are very grateful to them for setting aside time for our visits in their busy schedules. These photos were taken at the Worcester Art Museum and Harvard University, and the man looking through the microscope at the left photo is Dennis Geronimus, Gretchen's co-curator for the exhibition. On the left are the three paintings in the Museum of Fine Arts, Strasbourg, that the curator kindly had taken off view so I could look at the backs of the pictures. On the right is the conservation studio of the Wadsworth Athenaeum, where we could study a full-size X-radiograph composite next to the picture, which you can see peeking from behind on the right. And for the painting people here, you'll notice that the Ottawa and Hartford pictures are on diamond twill-weave fabric, the Palazzo Pitti portrait of a lady is paper mounted on wood. All the rest of the pictures are on wood panel, 
with the exception of a few paintings that were transferred in the 19th or 20th centuries. Since the survey was in preparation for the exhibition, I checked the painting measurements, and since picture frames are rarely published, I took photos of the frames for the exhibition designer and the registrar's department. In the catalog, you'll see only the original frames for the Horn St. Jerome and the Perugia Pietà, which Gretchen showed. Those are the only two that are reproduced. On your left is the late Immaculate Conception in Fiesole with the tour group seated in front of it. And on your right, the early Monte Vettelini panel in a small Tuscan hill town. The Monte Vettelini altarpiece is hung above a low doorway. So although I could see certain things about the picture, incised lines for the architecture, a black liquid underdrawing, and details of the background landscape, it wasn't until the painting was installed in the galleries here that I could see that even this early painting displayed one of the most characteristic features of Piero's painting technique. The subtle texturing of the paint made by tamping or stippling with a paintbrush or his fingers. I didn't find it surprising that Piero used his fingers to blot thin glazes, especially in the flesh tones to modulate the shadows. But Piero also used finger tamping and finger wiping in opaque paints. And I should say, by tamping and stippling, I'm talking about this kind of movement. Um, in the Monte Vettelini altarpiece, the trompe fly is painted on top of the highlighted passage, more, thinly, more thickly painted and textured with fingerprints on the arch of St. Lazarus's foot. A stippled texture is, fine in, is found in the skies of many of Piero's paintings. In the tondo from the Philbrook Museum of Art, the paint of the sky was applied thickly with strong brushstrokes in a horizontal direction. After it had dried, final touches of a reddish-brown glaze were applied thin and fluid, allowing them to sink into the craggy texture of the sky, creating a blurring between form and color characteristic of his late paintings, but also found in passages of his earlier ones. The added embellishment seen here in the Innocenti altarpiece, that is the embroidered borders on textiles and the decorative halos, come from the long tradition of punchwork on Italian gold ground paintings, and of course before that from Byzantine paintings. And I hope you were able to come to the lecture yesterday where Robert Nelson gave a fascinating talk on the effect of light on the gold in Byzantine pictures. <clears throat> in Florence, the influence of Netherlandish paintings marked by the arrival on May 28th 1482 of the Portinari altarpiece by Hugo van der Goes altered the choices of materials used to simulate gold. Throughout his career, Piero used a range from traditional gold leaf and powdered gold applied with a small paintbrush to impossible highlights of yellow paint standing proud of the surface. Here in a combination of materials, the halo belonging to St. Catherine of Alexandria was executed in oil where it is juxtaposed against the orange tunic behind whoops, sorry, here, and gold against the maroon drapery. Piero's underdrawings are often fairly schematic, delineating the outer contours of the figures, the major drapery folds, and general landscape features. What is more striking are pale washes that correspond to not elements added during the underdrawing stage, but elements removed from the final composition. 
For example, in the infrared reflectogram of the St. Louis altarpiece, John the Baptist wears a V-neck tunic that ties on his shoulder. But at a certain moment, as the painting progressed, Piero deleted the tunic, and it is not present in the finished painting. We may compare the Pentimenti in the figure of Bacchus, standing at the left edge of the misfortune of Silenus, where a second set of legs was executed in thin brown washes. There are more Pentimenti in the satyr, who is holding a red bowl containing the cooling mud that's being slathered on Silenus's eyes, swollen from wasp stings. The changes are in his legs, but rather than brown, thin brown washes, there is a thicker, fluid white paint. When the Pentimenti and the Silenus were examined with infrared reflectography, we found the same appearance as that deleted tunic in the St. Louis altarpiece. For me, coming from the National Gallery where nearly all of the Italian paintings have been cradled, such as you see here on the gallery's as the National Gallery's allegory, <clears throat> it was a learning experience to see so many panels that had not been cradled. Cradling is a restoration procedure no longer carried out in the same way that is intended to flatten the warping of wood panels. The original thickness is shaved down, and then a heavy wooden lattice is glued to the back. The main, predella, the main panel and the predella of the St. Louis altarpiece have not been cradled. The photo at lower right shows the back of the predella box, the box on which the altarpiece sits. We found a circular stamp pressed into the wood with a cross and possibly the letters AT. These embossed stamps or brands are rarely published for Italian paintings, and I've only been able to find three references. But in addition to this stamp, we found two more during the installation of the exhibition, and one of them is identical to a stamp on a Raphael from 1506, now in Munich. This is a photo of the back of the Innocenti altarpiece, taken in 2010, when the cross-grain battens and the butterflies were removed during structural work to the panel. And if you look at the painting upstairs in the galleries, if you look on the side, you'll see that the painting has two very large cross battens, one across the top and another one across the bottom. <clears throat> I had always assumed that butterfly inserts on the back of panels were always later interventions. But again, they are rare, though not unheard of, and only a very few have been published. The National Gallery's visitation was re-cradled in about 1937. The 1937 restorer carefully removed the labels from the old cradle and attached them to the new cradle. The labels can be connected to the art dealers, Duveen Brothers, who own the painting. Tracking the label text, case 4954, that is shipping crate 4954 in the firm's archives, we know that the Toledo Tondo and the National Gallery Visitation were shipped across the Atlantic to New York on the same boat, the SS Paris, in May 1930, as well as the names and invoice charges for the man who had attached the earlier cradle, the lady restorer who worked on the front of the picture, and the frame maker. Um, the photo of the painting is taken from a 1940s lantern slide from the Department of Libraries, from the Department of Library Images Crest Collection. This really is a works-in-progress talk because I'm revising my essay for the Uffizi version of the catalog, and I'm taking the opportunity to switch out the illustrations and to expand one or two points that were necessarily condensed in the first version. 
But to end this talk, I want to mention two of the footnotes in my essay. They'll stay as footnotes, but I thought I would show some of the related images. The first footnote concerns the origin of the colored hatching in the shadows of Piero's pictures. It is found in nearly all of his pictures, but here's an example from the St. Louis altarpiece with deep red hatching in the Virgin's pink dress. Like Gretchen, I've been looking at his contemporaries, such as Ghirlandaio and his frescoes in the altarpiece for the Sassetti Chapel and the 1488 Innocenti altarpiece. Here in the fresco, there is deep red hatching on the blue mantle and brown hatching along the line of the man's chin. Here. In his article, Ghirlandaio and the Origins of Cross Hatching, Chris Fisher noted the use of cross hatching in drawings of the 1490s by Fra Bartolomeo, who had just finished his training under the guidance of Piero di Cosimo in Cosimo Roselli's workshop. And he further noted cross hatching of a more accidental kind in drawings by Cosimo Roselli. The engraver Francesco Roselli, Cosimo Roselli's brother, owned a print shop, so it may be that Piero had ready access to northern prints and was interested in the effect of the marks, perhaps of the sort seen here in examples by the master E.S., to create what Sharon Gregory has called the sculptural clarity in conveying volumetric depth. In the ringling construction of a palace, Piero used pinholes and partially drawn horizontal lines to create a grid. There were changes to the roof line of the buildings. We've been given permission to redo my infrared details at the end of the exhibition so we can hopefully gain a better understanding of the variable spacing of the grid work and how the pers perspectival layout relates to the group of ideal city panels in Urbino, Baltimore, and Berlin. Many people were involved in the exhibition, and we'd like to thank a few indispensable staff members who have been involved from the very beginning, particularly David Essex, Jen Cipriano, Jamie Anderson, Michelle Fondas and Teresa Beale, and also high praises due to Wendy Schleicher for her beautiful catalog design, and Ellen Hersey and Tam Breifogel for dealing with our impossible manuscripts. Thank you. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast. 